0: Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you here this morning have recently taken a test of some kind? Anybody? There's a handful of you out there. Final exams at the college have come and gone, uh, but there are still a few students among us, and uh, May term is not done yet. So uh, how are all you May termers doing? I imagine there's some tests still to come. Some of you are still in high school, and final exams aren't all that far away for you. Um, Soon you too will be involved in testing, trying to make that grade If you're a professor or a teacher, you know all about tests because you're the ones that are giving them and making them. Some of of you are tested through your jobs, through your work. Uh, They require require you to maintain certain standards, certain certifications. You have to meet certain criteria uh, to stay current in your work. We've all faced tests of some kind or another uh, in our lives, but you know, as Christians, The the biggest test in our lives is the test of our faith. And this is an ongoing test that we all have to take. So how are we doing with that test? Is Christ exalted in our daily lives? Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 27, which Pastor West just read for us a few moments ago, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wow, that's a tall order. I mean, who among us is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Why did Paul write this to the Philippian church? And how does it apply to us here in the Houghton Church this morning? Well, let's start with the Philippians. See, we can better understand how Paul's words apply to us here this morning if we, un- if we understand why he wrote them to the Philippian church. Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that its citizens were also legally citizens of Rome itself. The Philippians prided themselves on being good Romans, even though Philippi was actually in Macedonia. Citizenship is one of the recurring elements in Paul's letter here to the Philippians. And here, Paul is reminding these Philippian Christians that their first allegiance is not to Rome, but to Christ. Their citizenship is in heaven, and more important than conducting themselves in a manner worthy of Rome, they were to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, the same is true for us today. Most of us are good citizens of our country. We excel at the virtues and the values that we've learned uh, from our culture hard work, a good education, getting ahead, self-sufficiency, self-enrichment, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so on. But are we good citizens of heaven? Do we daily and consistently conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? I think before we can honestly answer that question, we have to ask the question, What does that mean? What does it mean for us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, Paul would say, for one thing, it means pursuing peace and unity right here within our local body of Christ. These Philippians were very near and dear to Paul's heart, they helped him through some very difficult times in his ministry. He loved them dearly, and he was thankful for God's work in them and among them. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them in their faith and in their witness. You see, these Philippian believers were suffering at the hands of hostile unbelievers outside the church. And so Paul urges them to contend as one for the faith of the gospel. But there was also dissension in the ranks within the church. Believers who were quarreling and and disrupting the fellowship of the body. In essence, Paul is saying to them and to us, in order to be effective witnesses for Christ in the face of those outside the church who oppose you, you have to deal with the strife within the church and the wounds that it causes. And so for Paul, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is all about unity. Christ is exalted when the church is united. Paul's interest here is in how the Philippian believers handle themselves and the attitude, or handle their differences, and the attitude with which they approach one another. Listen to to his hopeful words in the first few verses of chapter two. If, therefore, you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, unity. Paul is basically saying, I love what God is doing among you, Philippians. If God is at work in your lives, You need to demonstrate it by intentionally pursuing unity in the church. Why? Because there is a world watching. And they want to see if you believe what you say you believe. I wonder, as outsiders look in on us here in Houghton, what do they see? Is Christ exalted among us? Would it be accurate to describe us as being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose? We all know that differences of opinion arise and, and not everyone agrees on everything. Paul's not disputing that at all. The goal is unity, not uniformity. But can it be said of us that we are standing united? Contending as one for the gospel. Unity. That's a great goal, right? I mean, who can argue with that? Everybody wants unity, but it's not really that simple. I mean, unity is elusive. How can we be united when we have so many differences? We have different opinions, different desires, different personalities, different needs, different tastes, different priorities. How does unity play into all of that? Well, yes, unity is difficult. But I'm reminded of the words of of Jesus, with God all things are possible. And Paul pinpoints the key to unity and shows us in these next verses the path to get there. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So humility is key. Putting the good of others ahead of our own is necessary for unity in the church to be a reality. Does that describe us? If someone were describing you to another person, is that how they would describe you? Ron Sider, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, contends that there is little practical difference between evangelical Christians and non-Christians in many aspects of life. Sider says, by their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. Now, it would be easy for us to write off Sider's claim altogether. Many of us would say, well, that's, that's not me at all, and I'm sure that's not most of the people in Houghton. And it may be true that, that not many among us are given to pursuing money or sex as, as a means of self-fulfillment, but are we really all that easily rid of self-interest? I would venture to guess that for many self-fulfillment is still the primary goal, even in the church. Self-interest runs deep. And apart from a mighty work of God's grace in our lives, many of us won't even be able to recognize it in ourselves. Though we quickly recognize it in others, don't we? I wonder what selfish ambition and vain conceit might look like among us here in Houghton. What about a spirit of competition? Though most of us would hate to admit it, I fear that even as Christians, too often we compete with one another for position, for power, for prestige. Gordon MacDonald recalls the familiar story from Oscar Wilde about the devil crossing the Libyan desert. And uh, along the way, he came to a spot where a number of his colleagues, a number of demon fiends or whatever you want to... Call them, they were tormenting this, this holy man of God, this, this hermit. Well, the holy hermit was pretty easily able to shake off the, uh, the evil suggestions of these fiends, and, and the devil watched them fail several times, and then he stepped in to give them a lesson. He said, What you do is too crude. Watch me for just a moment. And with that, he turned and he whispered in the, the hermit's ear. He said, your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. And then he watched as a scowl of jealousy began to cloud the the calm face of the hermit. And he turned to his little demon friends and said, that is the kind of thing that I recommend. Do we feel threatened by the success of those around us? Jealousy and unhealthy competition certainly threaten unity within the church. What about a spirit of criticism? This happens when we become bitter with those who differ with us. It happens when we take too personally decisions uh, with which we don't agree. It happens when we try to turn matters of principle into matters of preference. I don't have any data to back it up, but I'm sure it's out there. I would would venture to guess that most church squabbles, uh, most church splits, Uh, happen over matters of preference, not matters of principle. Instead of really listening to each other and trying to work through difficulties together, the two sides simply attack each other's positions. And they exchange criticisms, driving a wedge further into the divide. As one person put it, both sides wrap themselves in principle and then sharpen their spears And then there's the spirit of condescension. This is really pride disguised as love. Most of us don't mind working with and helping other people as long as we and they know that we are moving down to do it. We all like to serve if it makes us look good and feel good. Love for the weak and oppressed usually only appeals to our pride without challenging it. The challenge is to serve someone who is our equal or better. How are we doing? You see, self promotion, selfish ambition, it's a real problem for many of us, though we may not even recognize it in ourselves. It's the easiest thing in the world to be self absorbed. We don't have to work at it, it comes naturally to us, and it's very subtle. It infiltrates every aspect of our lives. Michael Lindvall, the pastor of Brick Presbyterian Church in New York, says if the brokenness of this old world has some core malignancy, it must be the tendency for every last one of us to see him or herself as the center of the universe. Each of us tends to fancy himself the one around which everything rotates like planets around the sun. Even faith can become self-serving. A way to find peace for me. A way to find fulfillment for me. A way to discover meaning for me. It doesn't take any intentionality to be self-absorbed. It takes intentionality not to be. I confess, I've been asking God to work on me in this area. I know about myself that I can be pretty self-absorbed sometimes. Mary knows it about me too. It's so easy to get preoccupied with what I'm doing, get busy with my priorities, with what I think is important. And I've occasionally missed seeing obvious needs around me because I've been focused in on my agenda. And every so often, by God's grace, I'm able to step back and realize that my thoughts have been all about me, me, me. And I don't even try, it comes naturally. I'm asking God to work in my life in this very point because to live my life out of my own self-interest is to not live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says humility is vital to unity. Selfish ambition destroys unity. Humility creates unity. Well, I looked up humility in the dictionary and guess what it said? It gave me this very helpful definition, the quality or condition of being humble. Well, that clears it right up, doesn't it? So I looked up humble and got a better definition. Here's what it means to be humble according to the dictionary. Marked by meekness or modesty in behavior, attitude, or spirit. Showing submissive respect of low rank or station unpretentious. I like those definitions. They fit well with the idea of humility in this passage and in other passages in which Paul connects humility to, the church, to unity in the church. In Romans 12, 9 through 16, for example, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves and live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. In Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And now, here in Philippians, our passage for this morning, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. One pastor used the the mighty Niagara Falls as an example to illustrate this idea of humility. He says, the reason that the water rushes over the falls with such tremendous force is that the water for miles and miles has been gaining velocity as it moves lower and lower. And even the story of Niagara doesn't end at the base of the falls, does it? That water continues to rush forward, seeking the very lowest place. The water rushes lower. What a wonderful picture of humility. It rushes lower. Humility is the major prerequisite for unity in the body of Christ. Thus, to be humble is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes on to say that it is a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ precisely because it is the way of Christ himself. He says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Literally, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. To be humble is to look like Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Pre existed with the Father before the creation of the world. He was involved in the creation of all things. He enjoyed the fellowship of the Godhead and the worship of all the angels. How amazing, then, that Jesus made himself nothing and willfully took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself and submitted himself, became obedient, as the Scripture says, to death. And not just any death, but a disgraceful criminal's death, death on a cross. The verse says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What would it look like for me to make myself nothing? What would it look like for me to truly become a servant? In a world of self-interest, self-promotion, self-protection, and self-fulfillment, what would it look like for me to humble myself and become obedient? Christ is our pattern for humility. The one who stooped down and washed the dirt and mud and grime off the feet of his disciples is our example. The one who came to serve not to be served is our model. What was the result of his humble obedience? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ himself, uh, Christ humbled himself for others and God highly exalted him and his exaltation brings glory to God. As believers, we best glorify God when we exalt Christ. We best exalt Christ when our lives are characterized by the humility of Christ. We best live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ by becoming like Christ. Now, you may again be thinking, a lofty goal, a worthy goal, but I'm not Christ How can I live up to this? It seems pretty pretentious to even try. As Mark Twain said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Paul holds Christ up for us as the ultimate example of humility. We read it, we agree with it, but how do we go about practicing it? Well, there's good news. Paul goes on to encourage the Philippians in verses 12 through 18 to hang in there, to keep obeying, to keep trying, because not only is Christ the pattern for humility in our lives, but he is the power for humility in our lives. In verse 12, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. None of us are able to live out this out in our own strength and power our hearts are too bent towards self-interest selfish ambition and vain conceit that's precisely why christ humbled himself for us gave himself to us died on calvary for us because we can't do it on our own i like how warren wearsby describes it he says it is not by imitation but by incarnation christ lives in us It is liberating to step off the throne of our egos, that seat at the center that always longs for everything to be directed at us. And it is only Christ living in us that enables you and me to do that. It is Christ in us who enables us to to hold our tongues and refuse to speak unkindly or harshly about one of our colleagues at work. It is Christ in us who enables us to listen patiently for as long as needed to understand our spouse's need. It is Christ in us who enables us to view inconvenient interruptions as opportunities to help meet unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. It is Christ in us who enables us to truly rejoice in the success and accomplishments of our peers. It is Christ in us who helps us to realize the depth of our sinfulness and our constant need of His grace. It is Christ in us who helps us to serve our equals without condescension reminding us that that we need the same remedy for sin as those we seek to help, and we have the same Lord and receive the same grace they do. It is Christ in us who enables us to serve without the need to call attention to our service. It is only Christ in us who enables us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. It's only through Christ that we can live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. But here's the thing. We have to do our part. God wants wants us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Christ is the one who enables us to do that. But we have to cooperate with God's grace. We have to work out our own salvation, as Paul says, in that sense. Easy, easy. No. Difficult? Yes. One pastor said, we confuse the meaning of grace with easy and conclude that since we are saved by grace, the rest should come easy. And when it doesn't, we get discouraged and walk away. G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, most of us, I believe, truly want to be Christ-like. Most of us want to live the life that Christ wants us to live. But we don't want to put forth the effort required to become Christ-like. And so for many of us, the end result is that we talk a good game. But our lives don't really look all that much like Christ. And if our lives don't look increasingly more like Christ, then we are not passing the test of faith. Ask yourself this test question this morning. I've been asking it of myself. In my daily life, is the humility of Christ my true attitude? Or is it just another platitude to keep me looking good? Do I daily live out the attitude of Christ or do I simply pay lip service to Christ while continuing to pursue my own selfish ambition? You know, whether we find ourselves here in Houghton or or halfway around the world, this word is for us. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for us this morning is that his mind would be in us and produce unity among us so that together we may live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who is, enable, who, who is able to make us holy And by your grace, you make it possible for us to be humble. You make it possible for us to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ and members of your body. We pray for that grace today, and we pray that your mind would be in us and produce unity among us so that we might live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.